from WDBM East Lansing. You are listening to The The Undercurrent, our weekly news and storytelling program made by and for the students of Michigan State University. You are listening to The The Undercurrent. Hello and welcome to The Undercurrent Season 12, Episode 2. This one's called Take Me to Your Leader. Things are going to be a little bit different today than your normal Undercurrent show. We're going to have three hosts. First, me, Cole Tunningly. Then, hi, I'm Sophie Sagan. I'm the news director at WDBM. And I'm Taylor Holterman, the new assistant news director at WDBM. We are going to be your producers for this season of The Undercurrent. And we wanted to let you know about our open house that's coming up um, on September 19th. Come check out the station in the basement of Holden Hall. We'll be here. Uh, We'd love to have you come join us to produce The Undercurrent. Yeah, I actually started off um, the first time I ever came to the Impact Station was for the open house. So I'm excited to start producing this season and hopefully have some new volunteers when we work on projects about bees and the biodome. And Sophie has an exciting project for next week. Yeah, hopefully I'll be interviewing a local author. And I'm also working on getting our fun Halloween episode getting set up for later in the fall. Uh, But this week, Cole did a story for us. Cole, do you want to introduce yours? So, yeah, this morning I went to the Board of Trustees meeting. It was President Stanley's first meeting with the board as president of MSU. Uh, So it was kind of a big deal. I stuck around for the public comment section to hear what the people had to say to him on his first big day, Uh, and here's what I found. All right, let's jump into it. This past Friday, September 6th, Samuel Stanley attended his first Board of Trustees meeting as MSU's president. Just a day earlier, a report from the Department of Education's Office of Civil Rights was released. It showed the findings of their investigation into Michigan State's mishandling of the Larry Nassar and William Strample cases. The report is damning as it reveals that MSU failed in their responsibilities to properly disclose crime statistics, classify reported incidents, notify the authorities, and more. This report and its implications were the subject of several people's comments during the public comment section of this Board of Trustees meeting. Several people spoke up to President Stanley about their disappointment in the beginning of his time here. Some pointed out the administration's decision to dismiss 37 legal cases, involving over 100 survivors. Hello, I'm Deborah Mizak, and I'm the president of Women's Council. I'm here to address you regarding the MSU legal team's decision to file a motion to dismiss the second wave of Nassar cases. This action proves that the repeated apologies of the administration have meant nothing. Like a child forced by a parent to say I'm sorry without comprehension of the phrase's meaning, nothing of this university's behavior towards sexual assault survivors changes. The university isn't sorry for its actions, it's sorry it got caught. Lauren Sosinski, Vice President of the Women's Council, pointed out that Stanley's attempts to connect and listen to survivors have been disappointing to those hoping for more transparency in this new administration. Yes, MSU was fined $4.5 million, but that's a slap on the wrist to a multi-billion dollar university. There is not enough being done to ensure the safety of the students, nor enough to even begin to right the wrongs this university has committed over the years, especially in regards to the survivors involved in this scandal. President Stanley, you've issued a statement uh, on your commitment to the safety of students on this campus and listened to survivors on how to move forward. You've agreed to three meetings to discuss all sexual misconducts uh, or assaults on campus with students, faculty, and staff. This is not enough. 
Students should feel as safe as possible when disclosing information about such a sensitive topic, and walking into such a meeting to see your professor or employer has to be incredibly uncomfortable. MSU needs to take further action to right the wrongs and gain back the trust of its students and its community. You have let us down and have the potential to fix a lot of damage done to this community. As part of an agreement with the Department of Education, MSU will undergo some changes in order to comply with the Clery Act. Stanley claims that he will go above and beyond these standards set by the federal government. The pressure is on for President Stanley to begin the healing process that survivors and students were promised long ago. Other students at the board meeting had a different focus. They called out MSU's mistreatment of immigrant and DACA students. Patrick O'Grady gave an impassioned speech explaining the university's failure to protect its student body. Last semester during collective bargaining, the Graduate Employees Union asked for better protections for DACA recipients, improved information pages on MSU's website, and an internal audit of clearly discriminatory labor practices. The administration side of the table shot back that the university simply did not have sufficient resources to provide those services. If MSU has the resources to keep lawyers on retainer who serve no other purpose than to break the backs of staff unions on campus, then MSU can maintain a website with information on immigration law for people of all citizenship statuses. If MSU has the resources for a $6 million renovation of Cole's house, then MSU has the resources to make a public statement of non-participation with immigration enforcement agencies. If MSU has the resources to provide its new president with a contract fit for a pop star, then it has the resources to divest from all companies who do business with ICE. What MSU has is not a crisis of resources, but a crisis of morals and a crisis of priorities. O'Grady also called attention to the hypocrisy of a supposedly progressive institution engaging in such harmful practices. The administration of this, of this university loves to talk the talk of social justice. What with the globally engaged citizen leaders who will lead to a better quality of life at home and around the world that MSU's mission statement speaks of. Talk is one thing, but MSU's current walk on human rights issues is one of shame. Shiksha Sneha, president of Dream MSU, told the board members a personal story of being stuck in limbo between being labeled a domestic or international student. I moved here when I was 11 years old. I did all three years of my middle school here. I did all four years of my high school in Michigan. I consider myself a Michigander, which is why I was surprised and confused when Michigan State not only identified me as an international student, but also asked me for international tuition. Now, I was lucky enough that my dad was vigilant enough to go to several departments to meet with several people many of whom didn't know what to do with me because of my non-citizen status, until he found someone that helped me qualify for in-state tuition. Sneha outlined the findings of a study that show that Michigan State is far behind other schools in how they treat their immigrant students. The National Forum at the University of Michigan conducted a research where they looked at Michigan universities and how accessible they are for undocumented students. On tuition, we received two out of four stars, on admissions, we received one out of four stars. On financial aid, we received one out of four stars. And on overall general support for undocumented students, we also received one out of four stars. By the way, University of Michigan and Grand Valley State all received four out of four stars in all the categories. It's still unclear what MSU will do to address these issues. 
while President Stanley emphasized that he would work to address sexual assault on campus and the harm done by the Nasser scandal, he made no mention of DACA or immigrant students in his post-meeting remarks. For Impact Student Radio, I'm Cole Tunningly. That was great, Cole. Thank you. If you're just tuning in, this is WDBM East Lansing, and you're listening to The Undercurrent. Now we're going to take a quick break for a weekly impact update. The Undercurrent will return in just a moment, but first, your weekly impact update. I'll be your anchor, Caitlin Finnerty. Earlier this week, Governor Gretchen Whitmer made history by effectively making Michigan the first state in the U.S. to put a ban on flavored e-cigarettes. On Wednesday, September 4th, Whitmer issued an emergency administrative rule, or basically a public health emergency, according to the Detroit Free Press. The logistics of an emergency administrative rule are complicated, but simply put, the governor's office can issue a rule for a six-month period once approved by the Secretary of State, and once the six months are up, it can be renewed once. According to a spokesperson for the governor, the approval process has begun and the state will see the ban go into effect within the next few weeks. The reason the ban only covers flavored e-cigarettes is because they are the most attractive for minors, especially middle and high schoolers, with 3.62 million student users nationwide in 2018, according to the FDA. While the response to the statement is mixed, the Juul company agrees that the youth usage of their products needs to be reduced. The state legislatures plan to get legislation in the work to to confirm the ban for good, rather than the six- or 12-month restrictions that exist within emergency administrative rule. And that was your local news. I'm Caitlin Finnerty. Next, we go to reporter Nick Saba with your national news. Hurricane Dorian reached the coast of North Carolina this weekend. Even though the storm itself has gotten slightly weaker, becoming a Category 1 storm with winds of 90 miles per hour, it is still causing great damage and is considered extremely dangerous. Over 350,000 residents and businesses were without power in North and South Carolina, but by early Friday afternoon, the storm's eye was 90 miles northeast of Cape Hatteras. Dorian Center will keep moving away from the state's coast, but forecasters warned that the situation would remain perilous. The hurricane decimated parts of the Bahamas for over 48 hours, killing at least 30 people. Intense rescue and relief efforts are ongoing. With your national news, I'm Nick Saba. To close it out, we go to Ricky Haran with your science news. A 550 million year old fossil of an ancient worm, Eulingus bigiformis, was found in southern China by a team of scientists, including Virginia Tech geosciences professor Xu Hai Xiao. The fossil is one of the earliest pieces of evidence for complex life capable of moving in long continuous trails rather than just wiggling around. According to the researchers, the fossilized trail behind the worm indicates it was either moving towards or away from something when it died, indicating the organism was capable of decision-making. Since the worm has been dated at 550 million years old, it predates the Cambrian explosion, which was previously assumed to be the first appearance of complex life similar to humans, according to Nature, the International Journal of Science. Our ancient worm cousin may help to fill out the evolutionary gap between microscopic wiggly organisms to full-fledged complex life. Like we humans make an impact on the world every day, Eulingus bigiformis left its own mark on the world in the form of a little fossilized trail, possibly the first organism to ever do so. This has been your weekly impact update. I've been your anchor, Caitlin Finnerty. And now, back to the undercurrent.
Now we're going to jump real quick to a piece from PRX, the public radio exchange. Enjoy. This is my new favorite sound. Ready? Go ahead. Guess what it is. If you don't mind me saying so, my hunch is your guess is wrong. My new favorite sound is a stylus, like a record needle, a stylus dragged across a skull. This is How Sound, the backstory to great radio storytelling. How Sound comes to you from PRX and Transom. I'm Rob Rosenthal. Several episodes ago, I played a few of my favorite moments from stories that I'd recently listened to. No interviews, just clips I liked. Well, I got a lot of positive response, so I thought I'd do it again. And yes, a stylus on a skull? How could that not be a favorite clip? Before I tell you where that recording comes from, I want to say something about sound art. Or rather, writing about sound art. Over the years, I've read a handful of books about making art with sound. And if I'm going to be honest, I should say I've tried to read books about sound art. I usually can't finish or I end up skimming. I find them utterly impenetrable. The language, the concepts, the references, the vast majority of the time, I can't decipher the point. Take this, for example. It's from Noise, Water, Meat, A History of Sound in the Arts by Douglas Kahn. I asked Jay Allison to read a selection. Speak of the voice per se, and one necessarily speaks of the body. Yet the voice inhabits bodies differently. Modern Western culture typically locates the dominant operations of the embodied voice above the collarbone, attracted toward the head by the pull of the fusion of thought with speech, and by an unconscious that serves as a proxy for the rest of the body. Within this restricted frame of reference, traveling the distance from the brain to the mouth could be understood, among the ranks of the avant-garde, as a radical departure in favor of the body. Tristan Zara, for instance, undercut those people who would purify poetry and prepare it for an hygienic future by revealing, quote, the great secret, thought is made in the mouth, end quote. The mouth, in other words, spoke unhygienically for the rest of the body and defended poetry from refinement by a social elite. Roland Barthes attempted to find a basis from which to make a distinction between two male singers of Western art music by descending to the throat and elevating the genitals as though an Adam's apple found itself suddenly draped in trousers. See what I'm saying? I mean, really, what the hell is he talking about? I will say I've noticed a theme in this excerpt, a theme I've noticed in other texts, a relationship between sound and the body, meat, as Khan puts it. Not just the ear, but the whole body, and mostly the skull. But because the language is always so dense, I never really, I just give up. That is, until right between the ears. It's a radio documentary from the BBC, produced by Mark Berman and narrated by Ken Hollings. After listening, all the talk of skulls and noise and meat and sound art texts made sense. In fact, it makes me wonder if explaining sound art solely through writing is futile. You have to hear it and have it explained in plain language, please. In Right Between the Ears, Ken Hollings has an operation on his eye. His retina was detached. 
In the dock, you hear conversations in the operating room, as well as drills and equipment. Hollings was awake during the procedure, and he recalls the whole ordeal. And his description provides a perfect opportunity to explain the relationship between the skull, sound, and hearing. While the surgeon stares into the black space that was my left eye, another space opens up inside my skull through which I enter a new world. I cannot feel the delicate probing and maneuvering of the instruments, but I can hear them. Heavy buzzes, high-pitched crackles, fizzing, trickling and popping resonate inside my skull, creating the most amazing music I have ever heard. Where are these exquisite sounds coming from? You, you did have instruments and machinery going in and out of your eye, and there's quite a lot of vibration in the instrumentation. Your retinal detachment was caused by vitreous gel pulling on the retina. That process of removing the gel requires something called a, a cutter or a vitrectomy. You can't just suck the gel out because it's attached to your retina. If you just sucked it out, it would, it would cause lots of damage. So what we have to do is take little bites of it. And so this cutter is like a little guillotine and it sucks and cuts at the same time. And it takes little bites of the vitreous gel one by one. But the whole thing, because it's happening at about 3000 cuts per minute, there's a vibration that comes from that. When we talk about the ear, you've got the pinna, which is the big fluffy bit on the outside. You've got the ear canal, which is the tube that then connects to the eardrum, the middle ear bones, the little ossicles that vibrate. Then you go into the inner ear and that connects and takes vibration and turns it into actual electricity. And it sort of sounds like a one-way street, where it sounds going from the outside to the inside, up the auditory nerve and into the brain, and that's it. But actually, if you look at the auditory nerve, there's more connections from the brain down to the inner ear itself. Your ear is being tuned all the time to maximise the sort of information that is being picked up. So your brain is continually tweaking the inner ear. When you hear sound, you get these pulses of electricity firing up the auditory nerve. But the very sensitive auditory nerves fire spontaneously anyway. They're sitting there waiting to respond to the quietness of sound, and every so often they trigger by accident. The ear can make sound even if there's not outside sound. Lying on my back in the darkness, there is no interior or exterior to the act of hearing. I become a part of the sound that seems to fill the space around me. From a very practical point of view, your head 
and the shape of your head and how big your head is and what the shape of your ears are is one of the main cues that your brain uses to localise sounds in space. So the fact that a sound will hit your two ears at very slightly different times depending on you know, exactly where your head is turned in relation to the sounds. That's called the interaural time difference, but it's based on the width of your head. And you also get what's called a head shadow, so if a sound happens on your right-hand side, the, t- the spectral properties of that sound will be different across your left and your right ears because of the shadow your head casts. So at a really practical level, the only information you have, actually, about where sounds come from in space is being primarily driven by your head separating your two ears. Unable to tell what is up or down to the right or the left of me, sound itself becomes the entire world in my darkness. Except it doesn't seem dark to me, but suffused with lightness. After 30 years of writing and thinking about music and sound, this is the most vivid listening experience of my life. Huh. So the ear can make sound even though there's no outside sound to trigger it. I had no idea. And the head itself casts a shadow, a sonic shadow that creates a time difference between when a sound arrives in one ear and the other. That's pretty fascinating, right? But the connection between sound and body goes deeper. In Right Between the Ears, they discuss how the body itself creates sound, a low physiological murmur, they call it. Hollings, the narrator, he relates the oft-told story of John Cage, the composer, who once spent time in an anechoic chamber. That's a room engineered to be utterly silent. So silent, Cage heard blood coursing through his veins, a kind of low-level hum, and he detected his nervous system, a high-pitched ringing. And then there's the strange story of Martin McCarrick, McCarrick's a musician, a cellist, who, among other things, played with Susie and the Banshees. I was on a concert tour. I'd done a, a show at the Astoria Theatre in London, and I woke up the next day, and all I noticed was I had a slightly blocked ear. It wasn't painful or anything like that, but it was, it was slightly blocked. saw my doctor, who poked around inside my ear for a while and said, you've got an ear infection, and gave me some antibiotic drops. So I sort of was squirting these into my ear without really considering it really at regular intervals and when I was in Glasgow my ear started to get quite painful so I ended up seeing an ear specialist who got quite angry with me and told me I shouldn't be putting these antibiotic ear drops in because I had a perforated eardrum it was on a journey from Glasgow overnight to Nottingham for another show where the sort of real problems kicked in where I started to find myself going almost deaf in my left ear and my right ear also seemed to be losing some of its function as well and then this pain started it started off as just a sort of mild ache a bit like a dull toothache or something and after about an hour or so it was turning into what felt like a gradual sort of buzzing of electricity or something in my head which then exploded and this started to happen about every 10 minutes or so to the point where I could hardly move, I could hardly speak so I was on a, on a bus, a tour bus actually travelling down to Nottingham um, awake while everyone was asleep and trying to deal with this kind of crazy issue where I was getting this just horrendous pain really so I couldn't work out what was going on someone on the bus suggested me that it was a migraine and I actually thought that was perfectly reasonable that maybe it was the first migraine I'd ever had so I didn't worry too much about it 
I got to Nottingham where I sort of collapsed. I mean, I wasn't unconscious, but I couldn't stand up properly. Uh, I was very ill, basically. Every sort of like 10 minutes or so, it felt like someone was hitting me on the head with a baseball bat. At that point as well, even the, the sort of deafness that was coming with it wasn't bothering me so much as this extreme pain that was sort of going on in my head. And it did feel like it was, you know, partly of it, it started off in my ear, but it felt like it was no longer in my ear. It was right in the middle of my head there. I pulled out of the show. I was doing, booked myself into a hotel and I fell asleep. Martin woke up the next day and found blood on his pillow from his ear. Eventually, he was diagnosed with Ramsey-Hunt syndrome, which affects the inner ear. In Martin's case, it made him quite deaf, as he described it. And yet, he could still hear, loudly sometimes. People's voices were either muffled or sometimes they were also incredibly shrill, depending on the person and depending on sort of what state I was in. In my left ear I was deaf but in my right ear I seem to have lost an awful lot of the low end sort of filters as well and I was hearing a lot of frequency, a lot of kind of pinky and perky going on in my ears. I went into the bathroom and and I was washing my hands and there was a big metal pedal bin in there and I just pressed the pedal to throw away my paper towel and it was so intensely loud in my head that it knocked me off my feet and I ended up sort of in a crumpled heap across the room. That was the big sort of, wow, something's really not right here. Something's weird. And that was definitely a sound inside your head. And, and the idea of the skull being a sort of reverberation chamber, because I was quite deaf at the time um, and I wasn't hearing normal amplified sound, but this sound didn't really come from outside any longer. It, it shot through my head. So yeah, listening to these anecdotes, I think I finally get it. The somewhat strange and mostly unrecognized association between sound and the body, sound and meat. We like to think that sound is ethereal, that it comes from some higher, more refined dimension, here for one trembling second, then gone the next. No. Sound is meat. It's flesh and blood and bone. As for the stylus on the skull, well, you'll have to listen to the documentary to figure out what the heck that's all about. At the post for this episode, I provide a partial list of sound art books I've read, or tried to read, rather. You should add books you've read to the list, go to transom.org. That story about John Cage I mentioned, it's been told many times, and one of the best versions is by Connor Gillies. I featured his story along with an interview about how he produced it several years ago. There's a link to that story at the post to this episode of How Sound. This is How Sound, the backstory to great radio storytelling. It's a production of PRX and Transom. John Barth screams inside his head when he reads my scripts. Thousand thanks to WCAI in Woods Hole, the radio center of the universe. I'm Rob Rosenthal. Thanks for listening. That's it for this week's show. Next week, Sophie will be taking over as the host of The Undercurrent, and you should be very excited about that. Taylor Haltman will be producing, and I'll be around. Cole will be around to report more stories, and before we go, I want to give him a huge shout-out, a huge thank you for being an amazing person, mentor, creative force for the past four years. I learned pretty much everything I know from him. We love you, Cole. Thank you. Everybody loves Cole. Cole is a institution here at The Impact and The Undercurrent. 
I don't know what else to say. We love him. Thank you. <laughs> and now for the end, end, thank you to our general manager, Jeremy Whiting, our station manager, Olivia Mitchell, and our programming director, Amber Knuski. You've been listening to The Undercurrent. We'll see you next week. Bye. <laughs>